So as we look at these kind of two commands, Paul is kind of giving us a little hint, like pay attention. Uh, th- this is kind of the main thrust of, of, of what I'm trying to say to, to this young church. Remember this Colossian church? Um, we're not sure exactly what the, the heresies are that are going on, but there's something going on that has to do with their faith of, you know, here's, here's what God has done for you in Christ, but that's not enough. You need mystical visions. You need uh, traditional you know, Old Testament uh, customs and laws added to your faith that, that Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection and believing in him is not enough for your faith. So you need to add some things. You need to kind of supercharge your faith. Then Paul's not going to have it. He's, he's, he says, no way. Jesus is Lord of everything. He's done everything, accomplished everything for us, and it's by faith alone, by, by grace alone. We don't need to add anything to our, our faith. And so something is, is, is creeping in uh, to the church, and so as he gets to the end, it's, it's interesting that he has these imperatives, these commands about prayer, and, and, and also how that relates to walking in wisdom towards the outsider. How do we relate to those that aren't part of our community, that aren't part of our, our churches? And so based on these two imperatives, I'm going to frame it this way and ask a question. How to speak to God about people? That's the first question. How do we speak to God about people? And secondly, how to speak to people about God? So how to speak to God about people and how to speak to people about God. That's really what Paul is, is doing. He's teaching us here how, to, how, do, how, do we, how do we speak to God? How do we pray to God about people in our lives that maybe aren't Christians yet? So, so he begins in a very general way. Continue steadfastly in prayer. That, that's where it, it begins. He says, now, now this word, again, we, can re, we don't use that word steadfastly very often, just in our, our no, normal vernacular, but it's this, this idea of devotion to, it's persistence to, it's committing ourselves wholeheartedly to. He says, don't, don't give up on praying. Continue steadfastly, devote yourself, make time for it, engage in prayer. But then he adds this little participle. He gives a little nuance to it being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So, so it's not just devote yourself to pray. Praying is good. We should all pray. We need to, to give attention and time to that. But he says also you need to be watchful and you need to do it with thanksgiving. And so what, what does Paul mean here? Well, uh, most commentators believe that what Paul's picking up on is a little bit of what Jesus taught his disciples to do when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you remember back in Matthew uh, chapter 26, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, the end of his life, He's wrestling with God. He's going to go to the cross. Famous uh, section of, of Scripture, you know, going to com- co- complete the mission that God has sent him to do, to die on the cross for us, and to resurrect from the dead. And, and he's wrestling with, with God, and he's got his, just, his, his mature disciples with him that just are so obedient, so with him, just team players, right? And, and here's what, what Jesus does in Matthew 26, uh, verse 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And so this cup, the, God's judgment, God's wrath, it's going to be poured out on the Messiah, Jesus, for our sins. But then in verse 40, and he, be, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me for one hour? I'm probably adding a little snark to it, but... Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Any amens to that? 
He says, he says, here's this moment where you're going to shine. Watch and pray. There's going to be all kinds of temptation that's going to, to come your way, to sell me out, to, 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 to say all the wrong things. Right, Peter, I'll never forsake you. I'll never, never disown you, God. And then they, they engage him, and he says, I don't even know the guy. And so our lives are filled with temptation, right, every single day. So he says we need this, this posture of watchfulness, of where do we see our lives slipping towards temptation? Where do we see ourselves weak? Because he says the flesh is weak. The flesh is our sin, right? It's our sin nature. It's that part that wants everything but God, that wants to love everything but God. That part of us is still in process and still very weak, amen? Okay, to, you're like, I don't struggle with that. I don't know what you're talking about, Pastor. I guess, you know, I mean, I, maybe you're just not sanctified enough. It's a little quiet in here. Don't leave me up here alone, okay? So, so that part of us that this loves everything but God, he says, you need to pray. And pray steadfastly and continually because that part is going to shipwreck a lot of things if you don't keep that part of you in check. There's going to be all kinds of temptations to sell out your Savior. There's going to be all kinds of temptations to love everything but, but, but God. But he says, be watchful and be prayerful in that so you don't stumble. Which makes total sense. This is a young church. A few years into the faith, new faith, right? All kinds of temptations coming their way. There's all kinds of suffering going on, all kinds of persecution going on. You know, this, this whole Jesus thing is so new to them. And some of you in this room, it's all new to you. You're, you're young believers. You're new believers in, in Christ. And we know that our flesh is still weak. We know those, those things we, we loved before Christ, they're still there crouching at our door. So continue, be devoted to prayer, be watchful and prayerful. So when temptation comes, you can say, no, thank you. But he also tacks on in thanksgiving, which is really interesting. Again, very Paul. Um, Paul loves that phrase, thanksgiving. He talks about it all the time in his letters. He, he's the thanksgiving guy, which is, is, is th- there's a very specific reason for that. If you remember back uh, in, early in our series in Colossians 1, if you go to verse 11, Colossians 1, 11, Remember, Paul prays for the church. He says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. Okay, here's why he's giving thanks. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you are in Christ, that's who you are. So he says, be thankful for those things. Pray about those things. Thank God that you were once dead. You were once separated from God. You were bound for hell. The wrath of God was upon you. But now in faith, you have been transferred. A whole transfer has come. And now you're in the kingdom of his son. Now you have redemption. Now you have forgiveness. Now you have mercy poured on you. Now you're a child of God, a son of God, a daughter of the king. That's all yours. So if you know that's all yours, guess what the posture of our heart's going to be constantly? Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes and amen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So he says, be prayerful, be watchful, but it's always in a spirit of thanksgiving because you know what you've been transferred from. You know what you've been delivered from. You know what you've been redeemed from. It's with thanksgiving that we, we pray. It's, it's watchful. It's, it's where are those temptations and how do I constantly thank God for them? Now, What's interesting, I, I, I like this uh, quote from R.C. Lucas, who was a pastor in, in England, on prayer. He says, prayer can no more exist without praise than true praise without prayer. The one fuels the other. 
So, so I know we, we all can fall into the trap. It's, it's just God, just kind of an ATM. Just, okay, God, here's, I got five things. If you can take care of these by Monday, life would be good, right? Stressing out over this. My kids are going crazy. Um, we need, you know, there's not enough money in the bank. I'm looking for a job. You know, whatever. It's got family conflict, relationships, right? Just kind of list, list, list. But, but what Paul kind of turns on his head is he says, no, no, we, we need to praise God. We need to thank God. That should be on our lips constantly more than just the ATM. Nothing wrong with the ATM. Nothing wrong with asking God for very specific things. But our, our posture should always be one of, God, how can it be? I can't believe I can even talk to you. I can't believe I can even address you. That it's only through Jesus that I'm able, able to approach your throne and have a relationship with you. Only you could have made that possible. That you transferred me from darkness and you brought me into light. That I'm a new creation. That I'm a child of God. That I'm a saint. All the language that the scriptures use, that's a gift of grace to me. Holy cow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But yeah, life is hard and there is a mess going on around me, but I want to first just thank you for all that you've done for me. And I find it interesting that Paul uses this language as he talks about engaging the outsider because I think what he's getting after is if you realize what you have in Christ, you are going to constantly be telling others about what you have in Christ because it's such stinking good news. Now, that doesn't mean we have to, we'll get into more specifics. It doesn't mean you have to stand on street corners with bullhorns or anything like that. But just the, the natural over, overflow, the, the, the posture of your life is, I, I can't even believe I'm alive today. I can't even believe what God has done for me today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That it just kind of reverberates through our, our lives because it's such good news that we were sinners and yet Christ died for, for us. But then Paul gets very specific about praying for the mission of God because he shifts. He, he, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in, with thanksgiving, very generally for us. And then he says in verse 3, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account in which I am in prison. So, so Paul shifts his prayer focus to the church and says, you need to pray for me and you need to pray for all those that are going out to make Christ known, this mystery. And this mystery is really good news that, that not only are, are Jews invited into the kingdom of God, but Gentiles like you and I, most of us are Gentiles in this room, are invited into the kingdom of God. That's what, when you see that word mystery, in, in, especially in Paul's letters, that's what he's talking about. That God is making one family of all the nations, every tribe and tongue and nation. He's gathering a people to himself that we were outside the camp. We were living outside of God's grace and God's mercy, Ephesians 2. And, and he broke this wall of hostility. He's making one new humanity among all the nations and inviting people in. That's the mystery. So he says, pray for us that go and tell others about this mystery, about this good news of grace. That the Redeemer God has come to redeem and restore all things. And Paul has no problem asking for that. That's not a selfish prayer. That he even acknowledges, this is why I'm in prison. It's because of this mystery. Remember, this is a prison letter. We, we talked about that weeks ago, but it's a prison letter. Paul's writing this with shackles on his, his arms because of this message. And, and it's not a selfish prayer. It, 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 it's not, hey, I want to be delivered necessarily, but it, hey, just keep praying for those that have this work that are going to continue to go out, that are going to continue to make Christ known. Pray that there would be an open door so this message could go forth. 
And I think that open door is, is kind of double-loaded in a sense. It's just a blanket open door that, that there's a, a, a group of people or, or an individual that's, that's open to this good news of Christ, that that would be opened in general. But I think some commentators even say it has this idea of even their hearts would be open to this. It's kind of like this, this metaphor that they're not, not only that, that, that Paul would have an opportunity and you and I would have an opportunity or whoever would have an opportunity, but, but also their hearts would be open. Their, the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so this message could come in. Because we know the only way anyone's coming to faith is a supernatural work of God. Amen? Right? Like so, so he's asking, pray for that open door. Because I know sometimes doors aren't open, are they? That we need God to move on our behalf. God has to move in their, in their lives. So I'm asking you, I'm, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you to, to pray that an open door w- would happen. Um, he says very, something very similar in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among us, or among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have, have faith. So pray for us the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Very similar to what he's saying in Colossians chapter 4, that this, this gospel message, word of the Lord, same as gospel, this good news of Jesus, this grace of God that's come, let it, be, let it spread like wildfire. Let it go into every nook and cranny, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, into, into the universe, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, to the corners of the earth. Let it, let it go out, but then let it be honored as well. Because remember the beginning of Colossians 1, where Paul talks about this fruit, that is bore into the lives of these people, this, this, this message that went out and now they've become Christians and now God is doing work, that's what he's praying for. Not just an open door, not, not just opportunity. Yes, those are important. Of course, we want to pray for that. But also that this word would go and it would do its work in the lives of people, that they would begin to fear God, love God, serve God, that, that, that they would honor his word. They would say yes and amen. Do we pray that way? Are we, are we a church like that? I'm not saying we're not. I'm not saying we are. But, but individually and corporately, are we, are we a church that say, I, I want to see more of that happen in, in my neighborhood and in Kansas City? Do you know that 50% of people in Kansas City aren't Christians? That may astound you. But I have a lot of data that proves that otherwise. That's very true. That every other person that you meet is not a Christian in Kansas City. And... There's you know, nominal people, but, but those that, that really are not part of a faith community not, wouldn't call themselves Christians by any, any means. I think sometimes when we live in the Midwest, we get a little bit sleepy. You know, we're not quite Bible Belt, but, but, but the reality is there are a lot of people in your life and in my life that are not Christians, and, and yet we just assume, well, we're in the Midwest, so everybody's a Christian, right? Everyone's live in America, right? Aren't we all Christians? But the reality is, do we pray that God would do this kind of work into our families and friends and co-workers and neighborhoods. And what Paul is asking, do we pray for those with a specific call to this kind of work? Pastors and missionaries and church planters and elders and that, that, they, that they would have the opportunities to go and do this, even what I'm doing right now. Do you pray for your pastors? And the pastors at Warnell Road and the church at Waldo and Redeemer and Christ community and do, do we pray that the work they've been called to that God would open doors for the gospel because I don't think everybody is, is called to be a pastor <laughs> or, or a missionary in a specific way I don't believe that 
Actually, 99% of you aren't, which we'll get into in just a moment. But, but Paul is saying, pray for us that have been called, have been tasked specifically to make the gospel known in our cities and in our world. Pray for us that open doors would happen. And then he closes out that little ask, that intercession, with something very specific. He says, and this is something I pray for most Sundays, and it, God doesn't always answer the prayer, but, uh, or you can be the judge of that, but um, verse 4, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So even Paul's saying, not just open doors, but also that when that message goes out, that there's a clarity to it, that it makes sense, that it's intelligible, that people know what, what we're talking about. And I believe the Holy Spirit has to actually help us in that. Because you can be as clear as you want, <laughs> very clear, like, okay, this is God, this is you know, sin, this is Jesus, he did this, these things, he died, he rose again, right? And, and, and yet, yet the Spirit has to help us not just, just hear those things as words, but also that it, it kind of gets into the heart and says, now I actually believe what you're saying, that it's true. I mean, isn't that a lot of our stories? How many of you grew up in the church? Right? How many of you became a Christian a lot later in life? Even growing up in the church, right? Like, you heard the gospel all the time, right? Didn't you? Like, your whole life. That's a lot of our testimonies. It's, it's, I, was in, I was in church, you know, just hearing, yeah, Jesus, 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 Jesus. But it wasn't until I was 18. It wasn't until I was 19. It wasn't until I was 25. It wasn't until I, you know, I had a drug problem and, and I came to Christ. I, I was around the church all the time. Why? Because the Holy Spirit had to open my eyes, had to open his, my eyes to actually believe that this God is who he says he is and that now I can trust him with my life. A supernatural work had to happen in the soul to show me my sin and show me my need. And it may not be a drastic thing. It may have not been, you know, lights coming down and angels streaming around your bedroom. For most of us, that's not, especially those of us who grew up in the church. But you know there was a, a time, a season where you said, this is mine now. This is real now. That singing these songs wasn't just, you know, work. This God did what for me? So Paul prays that he would be clear. He would be articulate that this message would, would resonate with those that are hearing. So how to speak to God about people. We, we pray, we devote ourselves steadfastly, we, 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 we pray, we watch for temptation, we pray for strength, we do it with thanksgiving, we pray for those that have been called to, to this kind of work in very specific ways. But how do we speak to people about God? And that's where, where Paul goes on the, the second half of this text. How do we speak to people about God? So, so Paul's now shifting. Again, these are very much connected because Paul is talking about the gospel going forth, those that aren't in Christ, those that are outside the camp, those that aren't part of the family of God, that he, they would come in. That's his work, right? That's what he's, he's called to do. That's what he gives all his energy to. But now he's saying, but what about us, the everyday Christian that's not called to be a missionary or called to be a pastor or what does that look like for us? Well, notice what he says. Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. So, so what does he mean, walk in wisdom towards outsiders? Well, that, that's code for walk in a manner worthy of Christ. Now, where, where do I, I get that from? If you go back to chapter 1, verse 9. And so from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom 
and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So, so when he says walk in wisdom with outsiders, he's saying, he's saying walk in a, in a manner worthy of Christ. That if you know the will of God, ultimately the will of God is to, to know God, to know that, that he came to redeem us and restore us and make all things new. Well, we'll live a life worthy of that. That if you know this God, you walk with this God, how would he want you to live your life in light of those things? And that's essentially what Paul, Paul's doing in this whole letter. Here's who God is. Here's this Lord of everything. Here's what he's done. Now, now go live a life worthy of that. He does the same thing in Ephesians chapter um, 4, verse 1. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, right? He spends the first three chapters of Ephesians just blowing us away with this redemption in Christ. And then he says in verse 4, now go live a life worthy of all these true things and all this reality. Go, go live a life worthy inside the church with your brothers and sisters. Go, go live a, a, a life of love. Go live a, a life worthy with your wife and your husband and your kids and your, your neighbors. Go, go live a life worthy with your coworkers. Go put on the armor of God. Go live a life worthy of, of him. And so the, the wisdom here is how do we live according to all that God has done for us in Christ? How do we make Jesus look great in our lives towards those that don't know him yet? I, I like the way Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians um, uh, 10. It's probably a familiar verse, but if you keep reading, it gets really interesting. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So here's the coffee mug verse. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God, right? I mean, some of us probably have a t-shirt like at home, right? Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Right? Remember like the Christian football team? Like, Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. It's Christ who strengthens me, because that's probably what it was talking about. Um, freshman football and, you know, catching a pass for the touchdown. Um, but keep reading. It gets real good. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. So, so what Paul is saying here is essentially what he's saying in Colossians chapter 4. Live a life worthy of Christ so that you won't be a stumbling block to those who are watching you. Do everything for the glory of God, whether you're eating or drinking. Again, that's a very blanket statement. It's, it's just a very general. Whatever you're doing in your life, how can I make God look great in my, my life? And so that when the outside world, whether Jew or Gentile, are watching and looking in, that I'm not a stumbling block to them for an opportunity for the gospel to go forth in their lives. So Paul says our, our conduct, our lives matter. And I would say that's, that's very true, isn't it? That, that we want our... Now again, we're not... I know when I preach sermons like this, this, this is what you're thinking. I already know what you're thinking because I think it too. Okay, pastor, my life's a mess. And I'm not perfect. And I screw things up a lot. And I sin and... Right? So how am I ever going to make Christ known? I mean, people look at my life and just go, I'm just a, a train wreck. We're not talking about perfection here. But we're talking about trajectory. That, that, that our lives are consistently moving towards Christ. That, that he looks great in our, in our lives. How we talk, how we act, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, whatever it is. Again, we're not talking about 
perfection. I don't want you to hear that. But, but are we cognizant of our words, of our actions in our everyday lives? How are we becoming a stumbling block to those around us that might come to know the Lord? Let me give you a real tangible example of this. Um, and this is from my wife, uh, and this was years ago. She, she's, uh, some of you know she, she works very part-time as a nurse, but years ago when she was working full-time as a nurse, um, she was on a floor doing her nursing thing, and, uh, and she worked with another nurse. And uh, what happened was someone came into the, the hospital and needed some care. And the person, uh, the patient who needed the care, uh, was wearing an um, ACDC uh, T-shirt. Um, anybody know ACD? I know you're all into DC talk, not ACDC, but um, uh, a band in the 80s. Um, not a Christian band by any means, of a stretch of imagination. Uh, but this woman, who was a Christian woman, said, I will not care for that person because of her T-shirt. Um, and this was a woman who, who would love to get her big, huge King James Bible and just plop it down on you know, the counter and make sure everyone knew that she was a Christian. And, and yet her life was very inconsistent. Because that didn't cover over the fact that she wasn't willing to care and love for this person who was obviously in desperate need of attention because of her ACDC t-shirt. She was lazy and a lot of other things. And again, I'm not trying to beat up this woman, but what I'm trying to show you is that here's this woman that wants to make the gospel real in the lives of people, but her life is very inconsistent. It's very hypocritical. So the people that Jesus came to die for, you're not willing to love them and serve them, even if they have different beliefs than you. That's crazy. Like the gospel's not behavior modification. It's not, hey, act like a Christian, then maybe I'll talk to you. They act like non-Christians because they're non-Christians. That's how this works, right? Like what are we expecting them to live holy and godly lives? That's not where we begin. We begin with God is a good God who came to redeem image bearers of God. Yes, we have a sin problem, but we don't start with the sin. We start with God's mercy and God's grace. And then we show how we don't line up to those things and how we need a Savior and how God has provided that for us in Christ Jesus, not because they're wearing an ACDC t-shirt. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about ACDC. He's talking about, do our lives, our words, our actions, are they consistent with our profession of faith? And that's an important thing because he says, make the best use of your time. So you have all these opportunities around you. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. The word is actually translated, redeem the time. There's a sense of urgency there. He's saying, we don't have unlimited time on this earth, if you, if you don't realize that. Like, you're not guaranteed. I know science is great, and, you know, we're going to live till we're 130 and be hooked up to machines, like, forever. But, but we're not guaranteed life. I had a daughter who passed away. She's four days old. We're not guaranteed life. So there's a sense of, how do we redeem the time as believers? Now, this isn't, again, aggression, manipulation. Well, you know, Christ is coming back. I might die. I got to make sure my, my buddy's in heaven with me. I'm not saying that. But he's saying, look at every opportunity that you have, that they're all around you. If we keep our eyes, if we pray and we're watchful and we keep our eyes open, that there's going to be opportunities all the time for you to point to this glorious Savior. But we have to keep our eyes open. Redeem the time. 
And, and again, it's not, I remember my grandma used to say this, and it always just, it didn't motivate me, it just made me feel guilty and shameful. It's like, well, you know, Ryan, you don't want to be at a movie theater if Christ returns. <laughs> like she would say, I'm just like, Grandma, that doesn't, that just, now I feel bad. Okay, I, I can't see Goonies. Like, what, what are we doing? Right? Because Jesus is going to return and I'm going to be eating popcorn and enjoying a movie and now I'm going to feel guilty and shameful because I'm watching Goonies or whatever it is. Star Wars, who, back in the day, Karate Kid, name your 80s movie. But I don't think that's what Paul's saying. And he's taking the pressure off of us because he knows that your whole life is not just about proclaiming the gospel, right? You have family, you have work, you have obligations, right? But he's saying, redeem that time. Like, keep your eyes open. There's going to be conversations that can happen all the time. doesn't mean you're going to lead everyone to Christ in your cubicle or at your workplace. You need to work first. That'll come later. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he says there's these opportunities all around us. How are we going to redeem it? Life is short. Christ is returning. There's a sense of urgency there. But how do we do this? How do we do this? Paul gets real, real specific. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So there's like, like three little movements here. How we would speak full of grace, seasoned with salt. Now, I know this phrase in our culture, salty language, is usually a negative. That's not what he's talking about here. Salty speaking is, also, is actually about a... Per, so, so salt, back in the day, was a preservative. It still is, but we don't use it as much because we have refrigerators. But you'd have a, a salt that was a preservative. But we also know that salt gives a lot of flavor to the food that you're eating, right? I mean, you could take any boring soup or any whatever, pour some salt on there, you know, and it, it's just going to bring your soup game way up, right? So what Paul is <laughs> talking about here... You like that soup game? Sorry, my mind has got issues. Uh, he's talking about being winsome, being witty, being humorous. That's actually what the word means. That, that he says, don't let your, when you have this opportunity to, to proclaim the gospel, be winsome, be articulate, be humorous, be witty, be in, engaging. That's what he's saying here. That's what salty language is. It's interesting. It brings flavor to the, con- the conversation. That's a big call to us, isn't it? Like, like learning how to, to speak the gospel in winsome, articulate ways, maybe in ways that are different than, than how we normally do the, you know, Romans Road or the, you know, hey, if you were to die tonight, you know, I mean, but, but to find different ways of engaging people in, 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 in witty ways, in articulate ways, in salty ways, ways that are actually engaging where someone actually wants to listen to you. And you don't have to be a pastor to do this at all. I'd be long before I was a pastor. I I found myself in all kinds of conversations with barbers and neighbors and and whoever, trying to find ways to just talk about Christ, talk about faith, talk about my testimony, whatever it was, in just different engaging ways. And sometimes it's just very simple ways. Looking for open doors, looking for opportunities to do that. So so season with Saul, but but also he he talked about, and I I didn't mention it yet, but, but graciousness. Let your speech always be gracious. Peter will say in 1 Peter 3.15, let it be gentle. 
So when you talk about Christ, do you sound angry? <laughs> or do you talk with a, a graciousness, the same graciousness that's been given to you? A patience, a love that comes into your words, right? Or do you just yell and scream at people? Well, you're going to hell and, you know, better believe. It's interesting how he, he's kind of unearthing. He's saying, saying it actually matters how, the kind of language that you, you use. Is there a patience to it, a grace to it? Is there a saltiness to it, a winsomeness, an, an engagement to it that, that, that you would have an opportunity to, 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 to have these gospel uh, conversations in your, your midst? And then he says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I think what Paul's doing is he's building on this argument. He's saying, if you live a life consistent with Christ and you're prayerful, and your, your language is filled with grace and salt, and it's an interesting, and it's engaging, that you're probably going to have a lot of opportunities for people to come to you and go, can you tell me more about what this is? So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Very much like 1 Peter 3.15. So we get the word apologetics from. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy always being prepared to make a defense, that's the apologetic word, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may not be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, it should be God's will, than for doing evil. Gentleness, graciousness, respect. Now, What's interesting about 1 Peter 3 and, and Paul's admonition in chapter 4 is that what he's assuming is you don't have to manipulate, you don't have to knock down doors, you just have to look for opportunities that are going to come your way. You hear what I just said? I, I preach these sermons with fear and trepidation. Here's why. Two reasons. One, I'm bent toward a little more of the evangelistic gifting. So it's easy for me to talk to people about Jesus on a regular basis, and I've led many people to Christ. But when I talk about these things, the first thing goes, I'm an introvert, and I don't do this, and I'm not gifted to do this, and this is scary, and I never, never will do this. What Paul is doing for us, for the 99.9% of people that aren't called to be evangelists or missionaries or church planners, is saying that you can have all kinds of gospel conversations if you are prayerful and live a life consistent with the gospel and look for opportunities, they will come your way. And you don't have to break the door down. That's what he's saying. You're not going to do this every day and every moment, right? We, I mean, I, I go weeks without talking to someone about Jesus, but sometimes I'm like, you know, I need to break down a door. Where's my barber? Let's talk to him again. Right? But you don't have to. Because I believe God's sovereign. I believe the Holy Spirit's already at work in the lives of people. Like, I was not the Savior of Kansas City coming here. I believe in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 that God's been at work before the foundations of the world working in the lives of people to draw him to himself. That takes a lot of pressure off a church planner, doesn't it? Like, God is already at work in your neighborhood, in your workplace. So when you go into your workplace on Monday, your first job is not evangelism. It's be a good worker but be prayerful and be in relationship with people so when they, have an, when they start asking those, conver- those questions about Christ and the hope that you have, that you can be full of grace and give them a reason for the hope that you have. But you don't have to bang down the door. You don't have to manipulate them. You don't have to guilt them. You don't have to shame them. 
And I think that relieves a lot of the pressure off of this whole idea of evangelism. Not every Christian is called to gospel preaching and teaching, but every Christian is called to gospel conversations. I could summarize it that way. As an ambassador of Christ, it's going to look different for everybody, right? I, I know all the introverts in the room just recoil, just like, oh my gosh. I'd rather like slice my eyelids with razor blades and pour lemon juice in them than talk to someone about Jesus. Any amens? Right? But I bet by your life and by praying that you'll have conversations especially when someone is, the life is just falling out of the, the bottom of their life, they're suffering, they're going through something, that's when people are very open to the gospel, aren't they? My husband or wife just left me. I got the cancer diagnosis. I just lost my job, right? My, my husband or wife are losing their marbles. My kids are crazy. Whatever it may be, but just as a good friend, you'll be there to have those opportunities. And I've seen those opportunities come time and time again. But are we ready for those opportunities? Do we pray for those opportunities? So as we get to the end of uh, Colossians, I find it really interesting the way the progression of chapter 3 kind of lays itself out. Because what Paul is saying is here, he, he started five weeks ago with our relationship to Christ, and then our relationship to the church, and then he, he goes into our relationship with uh, our household, our, our, our family members, our, our relationships, and then he talks about work, but then he talks about the outsider, those that don't know Christ yet. And I think this isn't random. I think what Paul is doing is here is that it begins with our relationship with Christ, and everything flows down and funnels down into these relationships that is my life consistent with this Christ so that when these opportunities arise to have these gospel opportunities or gospel conversations, people aren't going to go, yeah, well, you, you live a very inconsistent life or you're a hypocrite or whatever. I think these things go together. Not perfection, trajectory. And I think the best evangelists are not PhDs in apologetics. I, I don't think the best evangelists are those that know the Semitic languages or Hebrew or Greek. I don't think the best evangelists are necessarily the, the smartest or the most articulate. I think the best evangelists that I see, that I know, are people who know and love their God because it just oozes out of their life. And that's where it begins. They know the hope they have. They know that they've been transferred from darkness to light. And any opportunity that they have, they want to tell people about this good news. It's because of the God that they love and the God that they serve and the God who did everything they could not do for themselves, and it just oozes out of their lives. I think some of the people that are the most intelligent and articulate are actually the most annoying And I, th I think sometimes it's, it's not that we don't care about learning or, or study, but, but sometimes we just we talk over everyone's head. But the thing is, is it real? I mean, we're shifting in our culture. It's not, is it true, but is it real? Is it authentic? 
Like, can you see what you profess is what you live on a daily daily basis? That's going to to move people's hearts. Is there a a deep-seated sense of true joy in this thing that that you proclaim? Not just that you can articulate the existence of God or that Jesus was a true, uh, fully God, fully man, that he came in history, that the Bible's true, all important things. But in the end, does my life line up with what I profess? Is my language filled with grace and salt? Do I pray wholeheartedly for God to move in our midst? Do I do it consistently? So at New City, um, one of the the things that we try to hopefully help you and and equip you with is that uh, just simple ways that you can invite people into your life, make Christ known. And and one of those things we we started a few, I guess a few months ago now. Um, You might have seen these little cards. Join me at New City. Just simple little, little cards. They're in a little baggie, as you can see. Um, we have these up in the front here. We have them in the back. We also have them in the gathering space. And we created these just for simple opportunities, just to say, hey, this is a church I go to. I've been sitting in the cubicle next to you for 19 years. I barely know your name. Was it Larry? Um, and Larry, I'd like to invite you to, to my church sometime. Here's all the information. Um, our, our pastor thinks he's funny, but he's really not. Um, but I think you'll enjoy the, the community there. And, uh, and hear about the faith that I, that I own. Just simple ways to invite people into your life. Maybe the first step is to, to come to a service or come to an open house or, or whatever it is. Again, we're, we're trying to just find simple ways that you can, can do that. And, and I, I keep a bunch of those in my, my wallet. Um, you can take as many as you want. Um, you want to you know, blast people with them, that's fine. But, but I think sometimes the best way to do that is in relationship. Just people you already have a relationship with, people you already know. Just saying, hey, you know, I know you, I, I know, maybe you know, maybe you don't know, but I, I am a Christian and, and part of this church and love for you to, to join me some, sometime. And we have other resources out in the gathering space. We have the story and some other things that actually gets down to how to actually articulate your faith and things like that. Uh, but again, you guys can do this. It's just ordinary people. We always talk about what is missional living. Ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. That's, that's all it is. How do I live in just the normal, everyday rhythms of life and be prayerful and intentional with the people that you've put in my life? And sometimes it might just be handing out a card or inviting someone to pizza or saying, hey, I'll I'll pray for you or whatever it is. Amen? Amen. So every week we, uh, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And, uh, and, and what I was thinking about this week a lot was, um, you know, this idea of being an outsider. Um, and one of my favorite texts, and it's actually uh, partly where we get the name of our church from, is Hebrews 13, verse 12. It says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And, and I think of what it means to be an outsider, and it's easy to think, well, you know, those that aren't Christians are outsiders, but you need to remember that at one time you were an outsider and that Jesus went outside the camp to bring outsiders in, that he suffered, he died outside so that we could be part of the family of God. Romans says that, that we were enemies, yet while we were enemies, Christ died for us. We were outside the family. We were outside the camp, and yet Jesus was willing to lay his life down for us to bring us in. So I think as we take the Lord's Supper, the, the bread represents the broken body of Christ. The, the, the cup represents the, the blood that was shed to atone for our sins. As we celebrate those things, just be cognizant of you used to be an outsider. And Christ brought you in. 
Not because you were worthy, not because you were good, but because he's gracious and he's glorious and he's the God who redeems. And so, so for that, like as we remember those things, as we go out of this place this week, is we, we think on that and go, man, that's where I used to be. And yet God is inviting everyone into his table and saying, come and eat and drink with me for all of eternity. So if you're a believer in Christ, the way we take communion is we break off a piece of the bread, we dip it in the cup, there'll be two servers up in the front. If you have any kind of allergies, uh, gluten-free, uh, nut-free bread, it's, it's some kind of bread substance in the middle there, um, please feel free to take that. Um, and if you're not a believer in Christ, we have some prayers in the, the city life. We'd love for you to read those, think on those, consider those, um, that, that though you may be an outsider, Christ went outside to bring you in, and, and he loves to redeem and restore us to relationship with him. And so we'd love for you to consider that. If you want to talk more about that, love to chat with you about that um, or one of our elders. So with that, let us pray. Father, thank you uh, that you bring in outsiders like ourselves into your family. Father, we pray for open doors, for the gospel to, and your word to speed ahead. Father, we pray that our lives would be consistent with the faith that we profess. And we need your help and we need your grace to do that. We pray that our mouths, our language, our speech would be filled with grace and it would be salty and interesting and intriguing for the sake of the gospel. And we pray that you would give us many opportunities for the hope that we have in Christ. Keep us prayerful, keep us humble. Keep our eyes open to where those conversations can happen. We don't have to be manipulative or angry, but we can be patient and trust in you and your spirit to work in our midst. And we can simply explain, here's the hope that I've found in you. So help us, Lord. We need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us.